0: This is Richard Osijo, a host on New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And this interview is being done in partnership with the Community and Urban Sociology section of the American Sociological Association and its academic journal, City and Community. Joining me today is Hilary Angelo, Assistant Professor of Sociology at University of California, Santa Cruz. And she's gonna be talking about her recent book, How Green Became Good, Urbanized Nature, and the Making of Cities and Citizens, a historical sociological analysis of the origins and meanings of urban greening, greening practices in cities, and urban green spaces. Hillary, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Great. So I was wondering if you could just start by telling us just briefly about your background and how you came to work on this project and write this book.
1: Sure. Um, well, actually, this book is d- sort of directly linked to the life I had before I went back to graduate school and got a PhD. I used to work for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation uh, for a program called Partnerships for Parks, which exists to do lots of things, but um, to, to connect, connect people to parks and to city government and help the city agency work better with its publics. So While I was there, I became interested in a lot of the themes that later led me to this book. Um, I was, yeah, sort of very, became very interested in the kind of political power and people's kind of love, passionate love for their neighborhood green spaces. Um, And I was also working a lot on questions of of access um, and in-park usership of various kinds. So... Yeah. So with that uh, professional background, I eventually went back to, to graduate school to think about some of these questions about sort of how we learn to think about nature, um, where those those ideas come from, and how um, those ideas are mobilized when people are making decisions about the built environment. So I did my PhD in sociology at NYU and... Um, focused on sort of history and theory. Um, So I I mean, I am an urban sociologist, but I I think of myself as someone who tries to bring kind of sociological perspectives to interdisciplinary conversations and urban studies and geography. So that's, yeah, so here I am.
0: (laughs) Cool. Thank you. So you start the book with a little overview of the greenest block in Brooklyn contest, which is meant to promote streetscape gardening, tree stewardship, and community development and engagement by encouraging people to do things like planting flowers and adding greenery to their blocks. And I I personally like this beginning because I was told I lived on a block in Brooklyn that once won that contest a few years before Mm -hmm. I moved there. And I never followed up on that to see if it was true. But anyway, more importantly here, you, you hold it up as one of many examples in cities around the U.S. and around the world of various greening activities based on the idea that green is good or green is better and has some kind of moral value. And the simplest way to put what your book is asking here is why that's the case and how it came about. So I was wondering if you could start by telling us about this idea of urban greening, what it means and how you're using it in the book.
1: Yeah, and I should say, I guess that um, that greenest block example definitely b- betrays my professional background, or at least this kind of original uh, experience in New York. But yeah, so I, I mean, I use urban greening, which is a, you know a fairly common policy term today, and I use it in the book because I think it's it's sort of vague enough um, and broad enough and ubiquitous enough today to capture a whole range of activities um, that that people probably already associate with it um, these kind of efforts to add what I call like si- everyday signifiers of nature to cities so I think of urban greening as including um, both the addition of parks and trees and kind of greenscaping of those kinds that you just mentioned to city neighborhoods um, as well as actually more recent interventions that are made in the name of kind of urban sustainability and urban quality of life so you know in the in the context of, of climate crisis um, green cities have become a kind of moniker for, for orientations where, you know, sort of nature or ecology um, is mobilized with those kinds of outcomes in mind. So one of, the, one of the things that this book does that's maybe a little bit unusual is it's sort of looking for connections in these um, sort of sets of practices that I say are all kind of all fundamentally driven by this kind of shared idea of nature. So we can think about kind of yeah um, yeah sort of greening in the name of sustainability and greening in the name of you know neighborhood beautification and quality of life in the same as 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 a, yeah fundamentally the same thing
0: right so before we get to then your own explanation of the the origins and the dynamics of urban greening today walk us through some of the existing explanations for it for for how it emerged and why we have it we've got this common narrative of industrial cities starting in the 19th century, creating green spaces as a response to urban problems that came from major industrialization and urbanization. So the idea of nature really kind of emerged in this narrative as a solution for problems of the modern city. But you outline what makes this explanation inadequate. Can you share that with us?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, that's exactly right what you you just said. And I guess I'd also add, I think sometimes since I just mentioned climate change and sustainability, I think sometimes when we think about greening today, we tend to think of it as a kind of quintessentially contemporary activity, right? So, so the sustainable city is a 21st century phenomenon. Um, but if you talk to urban historians or environmental historians, there's a lot of um, work on the kind of thing that you just mentioned, right? The idea that um, the addition of, of parks to, to city neighborhoods is a kind of response to the pathologies of industrial cities. So Olmsted's construction of Central Park or um, that kind of thing are the, the kind of examples that are often invoked. But um, yeah, one of the things that the book is responding to is that these these understandings of 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 why, why we add green space and other forms of nature to cities are all based on research that takes these kinds of large, dense industrial cities as their cases, right? So if you're looking at London, Paris, uh, and New York, uh, all of these are large, dense industrial cities that had those kinds of pathologies and public health problems. But, um, one of the things that interested me about this practice today is how ubiquitous ubiquitous it is. So we see these kinds of behaviors in all kinds of cities, large and small, and also all over the world, right? So not just in um, Europe and North America, but also Asia and the Middle East, all kinds of um, places that have really different cultural and political histories and all kinds of different ecological needs today. So in order to try to explain that, um, how the sort of ubiquity and tenacity of this uh, set of practices, I instead wanted to look at greening in a, um, <laughs> a location that didn't have those characteristics. So uh, I, I chose this place called the Ruhr Valley, which I'll talk more about, um, but it's basically it's it's low density and diffuse. And so Looking at that, I was able to um, kind of trace the history of greening there and try to build this alternative explanation. So I think that's what you asked actually asked me to speak to. But um, the alternative I pose is basically to say that this these practices aren't a response to these particular morphologies, but they're they're not they're not a reaction to, to cities as a particular kind of urban form, but they can actually are are sort of better understood as outcomes of urbanization, understood as a process. Um, so specifically I look at, um, especially the sort of transition from subsistence living to wage labor, um, but the kinds of new relationships to the environment that are produced through a whole set of transformations that that go far beyond this, um, particular morphology. So, so I make this different kind of argument to try to explain, yeah, why, why people could greet at all kinds of locations outside of large cities.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Let's, let's build from that a little bit. So. I'd say like the most important and the main contribution of the book is this argument of uh, this idea of urbanized nature, which you state is a, a social imaginary that emerges from processes of urbanization and makes urban greening possible. So yeah, tell us about this argument and what some of the logics are behind this idea of urbanized nature.
1: Yeah. And so, um, so I'll say for urbanized nature is a little a little bit of an awkward term. I couldn't really come up with a better one, I guess. But so what I was trying to do was to to you know to sort of to denaturalize this set of behaviors, right? By by kind of giving it a name and telling telling the history of this set of activities. And so, um, urbanized nature is sort of my phrase for for the the understanding of nature that we get as a result of urbanization processes. So. Um, I make a couple of arguments about this Um, for, well, first I'll just say, so I call it a social imaginary um, for, I'm not sure how many, how many listeners of this podcast are sociologists, but um, I, I guess I'll just say a little bit about what that, what that concept is and why, why it's useful. Um, Do you think that makes sense? Absolutely, yes. Okay, great. Okay. So the idea of a social imaginary comes from – is is used by a number of scholars. One of the most famous ones and the example that I use a lot in the book that I think is a really good analogy is Benedict Anderson, who wrote a book called Imagined Communities, which is about the the origins and spread of nationalism. So Anderson was really interested in – how kind of the idea of a nation, as what he describes as a finite, imagined, and sovereign community, um, is produced, reproduced, travels, and um, and really guides action. Right, produce particular produces particular kinds of practices. So, um, the idea of nation and the idea of nationalism became powerful again, not just in kind of Europe and North America, but all over the world, and eventually produced. Um, you know, social movements of various kinds, it inspires people to, to die for it, and so on. So um, he uses the, so, this, the idea of the social imaginary to describe this um, idea that is reproduced in, in various ways at various scales, right, both through things like raising the flag and saying the Pledge of Allegiance, um, but also through, through, through the acts of, you know, federal governments or the construction of national borders and those kinds of things. So analogously, um, I use this idea of a social imaginary to try to like make concrete um, this idea about nature. And, and in, in this case, um, I describe this urbanized nature as um, kind of reflecting an idea of nature as an indirect aspirational and universal good. So by indirect, um, I'm really talking about an idea of nature as, as you said, a kind of moral or affective good, rather than nature as a as a food source or some kind of material or subsistence good, um, universal. Because, as as many people probably probably know, there are kind of much older Enlightenment ideas of nature as um, something that lies outside of the social, uh, and it's kind of sort of separate from social differences and dynamics. And so I look at how that makes it possible for us to green in the name of the public good. Basically the idea being, right, if we, if we build a park in a neighborhood, um, we've created something that's good for everybody and good in for everyone in exactly the same way, right? So the most important um, questions become ones of like physical access. Can everybody get to it? Is it located in a good location? Um, it, rather than sometimes asking questions about what, um, democratic public space use looks like in terms of the design and um, functions of these kinds of spaces. And aspirational, because as I also kind of show in the book, these greening projects get mobilized with ideal cities and citizens in mind. So in the case that I look at, um, all of these were kind of oriented towards making a, a working class and sort of amorphous urban region into something that was kind of legible as a middle class city or a bourgeois city, but in general, I kind of look at how they get mobilized with these, these kind of not always explicit or uh, ideals motivating people's, people's interventions. Um, So that's what I describe urbanized nature as kind of concretely. Do you want me to talk at this point about where it came from or should I?
0: Yeah, go right ahead. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, so the other thing, um, I try to do in the book is both sort of characterize this imaginary that I, that I say exists today and that is powerful. And, um, and I also try to talk about where it came from. So, uh, let's see, how should I, how should I begin here? Um, so, well, let me just say, actually, before I do get into that, Richard, um, the other thing that I try to do with the Greenest and Brooklyn contest and in the introduction to the book in general is, I guess, just to help us kind of step outside of it as readers. I think for me, one of the interesting things about this book and about this project was just trying to get outside this very powerful idea. I mean, this is the thing about social imaginaries, like they surround us. We don't know that they're there. Um, you said that you lived on a block that had won the greenest block contest, and so I think I would try to sort of walk around and think to myself, like, why is it that that these kinds of interventions are even legible as beneficial in the first place, right? Like, why do we see somebody putting putting flowers or trees um, or plant material out on a street and and even associate that with something that's good or beneficial in the first place? So I just wanted to to make sure I said that that's part of the,
0: yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So you you mentioned the case. uh, Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really cool feature of the book. It's the, the Ruhr Valley in Germany, and you're analyzing its greening initiatives over the course of about 150 years or so. And I say it's really cool, because as you mentioned, it's a bit of a diffuse place a bit less dense than what we might think of with like a London or a New York City. It's a a region that doesn't really have a traditional city or one large urban center. It's more of an kind of an urban agglomeration that has, you mentioned eleven cities within the region, depending on how you count, and it features more of this polycentric kind of pattern. So before we get into the the specific findings of the Roar Valley, give us an overview of this case and what are you able to show from it given its distinct makeup compared to, you know, a more traditional industrial city?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, and this will start to get us into some, my, my long, long answer to the question of where this all came from. Um, So the Ruhr is a really interesting place. I think it's not, you know, it's not well known in the U.S. today, unless um, maybe among people who happen to be World War history buffs or something. Um, But it is, as you said, a polycentric urban region um, of about, I think today, six or seven million people that lies on that uh, western edge of Germany. And it was um, early to industrialize and a really important part of um, the industrial revolution in Western Europe. There's a lot of coal mined there and um, steel produced there. Uh, Many arms were produced for Germany and for uh, other countries in Europe. And so in the late 19th and early 20th century, it was kind of significant um, in the international imagination in the same way large cities like Berlin and Paris were, but it, as you said, was never one large city. So there was a kind of small chain of medieval market towns um, that that kind of run through the core of this valley. But in the late 19th and early 20th century, there also grew up uh, what essentially started as company towns, but a kind of a number of smaller cities near these coal mines and factories. Um, so yeah, it has, it is, it it was and remains uh, pretty pretty low density. There's a lot of kind of regional transport networks and also a network of regional green spaces that have been there for um, over a century.
0: Yeah, so let's start from this beginning here. The late 19th century Ruhr Valley. You identify a housing crisis in the region that it, it faced as it was industrializing. As the, this is the moment when the social imaginary of urbanized nature really shifts into focus and gets used by local elites to try to shape spaces within the Ruhr, specifically the material form of the Garden City. So tell us about this shift and what made the Garden City such a distinct urban vision from what had come before.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll just I'll just mention so the book the book is organized in in three parts and in, and in three different historical moments. And so so part one of the book, which is two chapters, really looks at the emergence of this social imaginary in the Ruhr. And that's what you were just referring to. And so I, I trace its emergence historically through this shift in the construction of housing for industrial workers um, at, at the turn of the last century. And so basically. I'll just I'll just describe what became came before so that what what came after is more um, clear and relevant to us. But basically, so what became what came before from about 1850 to 1900 was a type of housing for industrial workers that was pretty unusual. So, again, in large cities like um, Berlin or New York at that time right what we had were kind of tenement housing or um what in, in Germany were called uh rental barracks Mietskaserne so kind of large apartment blocks right where people were put put together many families were were living in one building and often many families were living in one unit and there were kind of you know not not good conditions in the Ruhr, because there was more space available, and because the um, mines and factories were being built on what had been farmland, the housing for industrial workers took a different form. So they um, they were called colonies, and basically they were these kind of little clusters of um, low, sort of semi-detached units. Um, that each had their own green space. So almost all of these units had gardens and sheds for keeping animals. And the the colonies were actually kind of organized like little villages. So they would sort of cluster all the workers from Poland in one group of housing and all the workers from Italy in another. And so the idea, uh, the explicit idea, if you look at the historical record, was to allow these of new industrial workers and new wage laborers to continue what were often described as their kind of country or village ways of life, right? to maintain their language, to live in a kind of small and homogeneous community, um, and for the, the heads of households to be able to provide for their families by gardening and uh, caring for livestock and animals after their waged workday. So I kind of document this and then look at a shift that happened around 1900, 1910, when um, these kind of industrial barons, and I focus specifically or most closely on the Krupp company, um, which was based in the city of Essen. They start building instead of colonies, garden cities. And so many people listening to this, I would think are probably familiar with garden cities, certainly more familiar with garden cities than the colonies. But these were kind of, you know, borrowing from Ebenezer Howard's model. So borrowing from a model that came in the UK. And what was interesting to me about them was that they were kind of morphologically almost exactly the same as these colonies that had preceded them, right? So a garden city is still a little, a little cluster of houses um, with ample green space. But what you can see or what I was really fascinated to discover was that the kind of function of nature and the forms that it took in these garden cities completely changed. So rather than having um, vegetable gardens, each unit has one decorative fruit tree and gardening is actually forbidden. Um, rather than having all of used massive numbers of livestock, cows, sheep, goats, um, you, uh, they also forbid animal keeping in these colonies. And um, you also start to see rather than this kind of recreation of village life and a kind of cultural and linguistic homogeneity, they start really deliberately kind of mixing, mixing up the residents of these places. So therefore, um, both the kind of lower wage employees of the Krupp company, but also kind of middle class residents of the city of Essen. And you start to see a kind of articulation of um, the value of kind of public and private space and creating distinctions between them and an understanding that people um, can kind of learn new cultural would learn new ways of living and um, benefit from the good, good example of these kind of middle-class residents who are near them. Um, and I, and I, one last thing I'll just also mention is that the, the kind of gendered relationship to nature completely changes as well. So While in the colonies, um, the idea was that these heads of household men were supposed to be able to access gardens and animals after the workday. By the uh, 20th century, we see that um, the heads of these companies like Krupp are saying that they're worried that if the men are laboring in gardens after hours, then they'll they'll rest at the factory. They won't be productive during their workday. And so gardening becomes a kind of leisure hobby for women and children. Um, So the argument that I make, anyway, is that this is where you see this kind of contemporary, recognizable idea of nature emerge in the Ruhr, where it turns from um, a kind of subsistence good into a kind of moral or effective good. um, And that is oriented towards leisure time as opposed to to work uh, or subsistence purposes. Um, And so, yeah, that's, that's the transition that I document there. And I'll just mention, I mean, to say that it emerges in the roar isn't the book doesn't say that this is the first place on the planet where it emerges, but it's kind of looking at how it again was able to travel from a a large density, right. From the UK, from a place like London um, to this, this, this low density place that already had a lot of nature there in different forms. And you can still see a, a really distinct Um, Change in the way those spaces and materials are being understood and used.
0: Yeah. And as the book proceeds, we really see how this idea really kind of uh, just builds and grows. And so, if we fast forward to the period after World War II in the Roar, you see there happening the emergence of leisure, nature, and the use of greening in actual city making. And you're uh, demonstrating this era by analyzing two competing and contrasting visions of urban greening that took place there. And in the US, we probably either forget or are totally unaware of how Jürgen Habermas's ideal of the public (laughs) sphere was more than just theory or philosophy, but was actually used by German planners to rebuild public spaces. And one of the projects you discussed used this ideal to construct regional recreation parks based on bourgeois ideals. And then the second one was a more of a a grassroots reimagining of the industrial worker colonies around this alternative ideal of the proletarian public sphere. So please discuss these these different visions and what they then tell us about urban greening uh, later on in the mid 20th century.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I think is important about this set of ideas or about this imaginary is that it's available um, for all kinds of political and social visions and, you know, it is mobilized by all kinds of actors with all kinds of relationships to power. And so that's why um, I'll just say that's why I use that's why I call this a social imaginary as opposed to something um, like an ideology. And that is part of the reason that scholars turn to this term in the first place um, to try to kind of capture something broader than a particular kind of um, distorted view of the world that implies a particular relationship to power and existing social arrangements. So um so in the first chapter or the first pair of chapters, I look at the emergence of urbanized nature and these kind of first impulses early in the 20th century to to create a sort of bourgeois city. And then in part two of the book, I look, as you said, at these two competing visions in the 1960s. And so again, that's sort of that's to demonstrate its use for multiple kinds of political projects, even in the same period. So the first one uh, that you mentioned is this sort of Habermasian notion of a of a bourgeois public sphere. And I think you are right that we forget in the United States, I had certainly forgotten or was less aware that um that, that philosophical ideal really was a practical ideal <laughs> in post-war West Germany, where um, the country was confronting real, very real questions about how to rebuild public life after World War II. And specifically, I mean I mean, there were many questions, but right. Rebuilding public life include included making people um, feel safe in public, creating um, spaces of where difference could be accommodated in public or, you know, would be welcomed in public and also um, kind of reviving public discourse, reviving political talk, getting um, citizens engaged with each other. And so, what, again? What I sort of found in the historical record, not going looking for this, was that this series of regional parks um, were built in in Germany at this time and in, in the Ruhr, and they were very explicitly talked about in these terms. So, so planners were reading Habermas or at least referencing Habermas and saying, like, okay, this is the this is the urban political goal we are trying to achieve. Um, we think parks and green space are really useful kinds of spaces for that project for precisely the kinds of reasons that I was mentioning before, right. Because they're understood to be universal because they were understood to be a kind of morally beneficial and useful way to spend one's leisure time, as opposed to like going shopping or listening to records or something like that for the radio. Um, and, uh, And you see them getting mobilized in this aspirational way, right? So the construction of these parks is very much about constructing these publics, these kinds of citizens. Um, So that I think is an interesting project for lots of reasons. And I could talk more about it, but I guess I'll just say, so also in part two of the book, I contrast that to this very different urban and political ideal in the same period. So you said it's, um, Uh, more of a like a proletarian public sphere instead of a bourgeois public sphere. So the construction of these regional parks was part of a post-war kind of planning regime that was oriented toward creating a sort of functionally divided and automobile oriented city. And so this planners were also borrowing from the United States, really um, kind of, you know, looking at American cities and suburbs. And so Uh, constructing these parks was part of creating a city divided into these kind of functional zones with separations between work and home and transportation um, and public and private space. And so part of the value of the parks was that they were these kinds of public spaces where everybody could come together anonymously as strangers in public. So we'd all be in the park and nobody would need to know, you know, whether Richard, whether we were professors or whether we were working class you know, coal miners, um, and we'd all be kind of equals by virtue of the kind of the physical location of these spaces. By contrast, this new left social movement, um, in the same decades, they offer both a different political ideal and a really different set of arguments about how nature of various kinds can help achieve it. So, in this moment of remaking and kind of modernizing cities in the region, um they're, they're tearing down many of the old workers colonies and replacing them with high rise housing. And this, uh, sort of new left social movement crystallizes to try to save these colonies. And the reason they want to save them is because, and I should say, so the colonies at this point have been kind of devalued, um, imaginatively and also economically right they're kind of falling apart physically they don't have indoor plumbing lots of them um they're kind of a mess, and this is why uh one of the reasons for for people want to tear them down and build high-rises but um but they're also seen as kind of provincial as sort of backward looking um as maybe the people who lived in them weren't very cosmopolitan or maybe they weren't very um you know maybe they had associations with the the Nazi era as well, although that's kind of less explicit in the historical record. But um, anyway, this new left movement like kind of reclaims them and turns all those narratives around. They say that's actually not the case. In fact, like what these are examples of is this really kind of amazing community space where by virtue of what they call kind of semi-public spaces, but mostly green spaces, um, people kind of come together and... Build solidarity, build a shared political consciousness, um, build community. And so they describe the gardens and the animals as the kind of material objects and spaces that facilitate all this. So, just for one concrete example um, that I mentioned in the book, they talk about, they say something like, people who have a lot of rabbits are supported by their neighbors. And so the argument here is that um, when you have When you're raising rabbits, if you go out of town, you have to ask somebody to take care of them. Um, You end up with a lot of baby rabbits, so you have to give them away to your friends. Um, The same kind of things that happens if you have a very productive fruit tree or a flower garden or something. Um, And so they look at the kind of increase in interactions that are made possible by these kinds of um, spaces and things and the kind of qualitative transformations in, in social life that result from that. So... Anyway, so they argue that these gardens and these this housing must be preserved because this, in fact, is the way to kind of produce a, a politically engaged and, a, yeah, solidary and conscious community of that kind.
0: Yeah, thank you. And showing those contrasting visions is really pushes this argument far, I think. It's really very well done. So let's get to the third part now where we see urbanized nature in action in, in more modern times, and you here show the perspectives of both greening protagonists, which in this case is the set of directors behind a proposed park, and audiences, just the people who receive and debate greening projects. And it's quite fascinating how the former, the protagonists, try to get people to see green space as a universal good and experience it as they intend them to, and how the latter, the audience's criticisms, they never really get to, they emerge, but never really get to arise to the level of being a threat to these ideas of greening projects as universal goods. And this part of the book really reveals the power of urbanized nature in shaping how urban space actually gets produced and consumed. So Mm -hmm. tell us about this example you use uh, this park to focus on and make these points. It's a, a park in the city of Dortmund, uh, and the what, who are the different social actors involved with it, and who were impacted by it.
1: Yeah, um, and I'll just actually I'll say before I get into that. So you know the book is organized in three parts. The first part that I talked through the the colonies and the garden cities is really intended to to foreground this shift in understandings of nature from a direct to an indirect indirect good. The middle kind of 1960s and 70s portions really looks at its aspirational use in the ways I was just talking about that um, how it is used to construct ideal cities and publics of various kinds. And so once yeah this this third chapter that's um, looks at projects that were initiated in the 80s and 90s um, focuses most on this idea of universality. So I talk about kind of two related projects. Um, the first is called Eba Emshur Park, and I I should I could have said this at the beginning, I guess, but this is this is the project that actually got me interested in the Ruhr in the first place. Because when I was a parks professional in New York City in the um, early 2000s, the region had become kind of famous because it had initiated this this 10-year um, kind of redevelopment. Project that was focused on remaking this kind of industrial wasteland into um, it. What were they were calling industry nature? Um, so industrial nature, these kind of post industrial ecologies. Um, and the region actually was designated a European Capital of Culture in I think in two thousand and ten as a result of these efforts. So there was this this big 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 regional plan um, that was that was greening oriented, right? So basically they were going to um, connect. What ha- many of these former industrial sites uh, by various greenways and blueways, right? So bike paths and boating paths, and turn many of these industrial buildings into museums and monuments and other kinds of cultural landmarks. And um, there was a big ecological restoration project of the, the River Emshire that runs through the region. So that had, had started um, in the 90s. And then when I was there doing my field work, Um, so I'm just trying to remember what, what year that would have been. I think it was probably in 2013 or so. Um, there was another former factory site in the city of Dortmund that had been flooded. So the factory, interestingly, was actually sold to China. Um, the factory was kind of dismantled piece by piece and rebuilt in China. But on this kind of spot where it had been, um, a large artificial lake was created and um, that that the development of that project is what I focus on most closely in these chapters that you were referring. So who are the stakeholders in the present? Um, so while uh, basically in the first portion of the book, I look at these industrial barons and the kind of work they're doing on behalf of their workforce in the middle chapters, we have kind of city planners and these new last social movements. And here in the last two chapters, this is really kind of happening in the, you know, under neoliberalism, right? Sort of in the current political economy. So um, so the the kind of context of actors and some of the trade-offs that are being made are going to be pretty familiar to readers of cities, city and community or other urban sociologists who might be listening to this podcast. So um, you have the kind of the city government, the kind of people from the planning and especially marketing department who are responsible for um, kind of conceiving and executing this lake project and making it uh, financially feasible. Um, you also have some employees of Eba Ampshire Park. And so that was in a large part an EU funded project. So it's a kind of large regional management body um, that's tasked with working with all of these individual cities. Um, And there are a couple other kind of, there's a regional water management cooperative and other kind of sort of nonprofit or public private actors who appear in there. Um, And then of course, you have residents. And so I try to look more at at their responses to these kinds of projects in in the present.
0: Great. So as a way of concluding a bit, We talked about how the Roar being uh, more of an agglomeration, polycentric, uh, has been engaging in urban greening at these various stages for quite a long time, thus making it a bit of an atypical case. So this is a bit of a big question, so you can take it however you wish, but what are some of the, the implications? For these findings in other contexts, not just in the West, even but in places like Asia, the Middle East, and so on, where we see urbanized nature getting adopted.
1: Yes. Before I get before I answer that, let me just respond to the last part of your previous question, Um, or just underscore one thing that you said. So I I I just spent gave you a long explanation of the different actors in these chapters, and I just want to make sure that. It's clear what I'm looking at there is um the dynamics of production and reception. So one of the things I try to show is that we are not naive givers and receivers of nature, right? So I think it's i'm not I'm not trying to say the book that um that everybody thinks that nature pr- that that we're just importing some kind of extrasocial nature into cities. And so I, it was important to me to look at. the the kind of clarity with which the producers of these projects can explain what they're doing, right. Can talk about all the work that's going into um, helping people experience these spaces in the way that they intend. Um, And you did mention it, but I'll just reiterate it. So I I kind of look at that dynamic and it, it, by contrast, how receiving audiences, they, they do critique these projects. They critique the fact that, um, that, housing has to be built all around the lake to pay for it. That was the kind of solution to the project that they came up with. And as a result, um, the park itself is too small, that kind of thing. Um, So people can still kind of engage and have all kinds of social critique with these projects. But as you also said, it's not about the the nature itself. It doesn't get to the question of was a lake really what we needed or would other things have been more valuable? Um, So I mentioned that in part because um, it it matters for implications for the present. So I'll say two things about that um, you asked so I think you asked about implications in other contexts. Um, I'm gonna also just say there's a question about implications and other kind of time periods. so I basically the book sort of ends in the in the early 2000s but the kind of physical spaces that are being remade there as I said are these sort of industrial wastelands and that is not quite the same as, the greening that we see today, which I was mentioning at the beginning, which is often done kind of in in response to climate change and in the name of sustainability. right. So the green city today is not so much the post-industrial city. it's it's the the sustainable city. So I basically argue in the conclusion that that even today and in many different contexts, we see basic continuities in the way these projects are carried out um, and received. And so, in um, in the context of urban sustainability planning, I've done some other work that shows that we still see a kind of bias toward green solutions. That so when when you're doing sort of sustainability <laughs> sustainability planning of various kinds or climate adaptation and mitigation efforts, um, sometimes those interventions might look green, right? Like it might look like um, a rain garden, or it might look like increasing tree cover in a neighborhood to try to deal with urban heat island effect or something like that. Uh, But it often doesn't, right? It often looks like um, improving public transit so people don't have to drive to work as far and thereby reduce emissions. Um, And so I found in current urban sustainability planning that we still see a kind of bias or an orientation towards these sorts of Aesthetically green kinds of interventions, regardless of their um, ecological or social impacts, and so I argue that that's a kind of another example of the power of this idea and how it continues to kind of organize our thoughts about um, interventions in 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 the built environment. So that's one, um, just a kind of basic argument about continuity in the present, and the other. Um, as you mentioned, is, yeah, I I try to use the historical argument that, that I developed in the world to try to talk about why I think it is the case that we see, again, these kinds of sort of physically and aesthetically green interventions carried out with many of the same kind of um, rhetorical in normative valences, right? The idea of being green as good and beneficial all over the world, right? So Ethiopia recently um, planted a, how, how many trees? I can't remember. They had a, you know, a million or a billion trees initiatives. Um, we talk a lot about kind of nature-based solutions to climate change. Um, there's been some great work done on cities in um, China that looks at the kind of eco spectacles uh, that are being built there. And so um, while the network now on which these ideas travel is uh, increasingly kind of international, nonprofits and consultants and other kinds of organizations that create best practices, um, I think you see the same the same sorts of ideas being mobilized. And the result, of course, in, in all of these cases is that we end up um, producing cities that might look green, but that may not be the, ecologically sound, even if it's in the name of ecological sustainability that these interventions are carrying out that may be completely at odds with the sort of cultural and social history of the place in which they are built. Um, and that may not particularly meet the needs of people who are living there. Um, and sometimes even have kind of regressive ecological or social impact. So one of the, um, one idea that's that's quite common in our field today or that people are doing a lot of research on is the idea of green gentrification, right? This kind of paradox that these green improvements so often um, displace people as a result because property values go up when you put more trees in a neighborhood because people love trees so much. So um, I, I would even say that this this the power of these ideas should be seen as a factor in even those sorts of processes, right? That it's not just natural that trees would increase property values, but that trees increase property values in a context in which everybody loves trees. Uh, So, yeah.
0: Oh, thank you very much. Your, Your book has really given us a strong theoretical lens and foundation for understanding a really broad range of problems. And this idea of urbanized nature, this social imaginary does what good theory should do and allows us to to understand a variety of, of context and issues that are happening that have a lot of some similarities or perhaps different forms. Uh, so Hillary, you've been very generous with your time, but before we finish, please tell us what you're working on now. And I realize that's a bit of a, a mean question because you've just written this great book
1: <laughs> and now I'm
0: asking you what's next. What do you got?
1: <laughs> um, uh, well, thank thank you for your time as well. Uh, I'm do, doing a couple of things right now. So one that I that I sort of mentioned obliquely when I was just speaking is I've been doing a lot of work on contemporary sust- urban sustainability planning. So trying to really bring bring many of the book's motivating concerns into the present more explicitly. Um, and so some of that has involved this kind of uh, the aesthetics um, and representational dynamics of contemporary sustainability planning. Um, I'm also doing some work with my colleague and collaborator, collaborator David Walksmith on, on kind of how and why cities became the solutions to global climate problems in the first place. So um, we're, we're doing a lot of work on these, these kind of urban environmental dynamics. Um, I've also actually, since I've, I'm now in California and Santa Cruz have been getting to know the state of California by doing research on municipal climate action plans there. So this is a more, Uh, Kind of policy-oriented project that basically looks at how these municipal plans conceive equity goals, um, and not surprisingly, it turns out that equity goals are often thought about in green terms also. So things like trees and parks um, figure very, very frequently in these kinds of uh, projects. And uh, so that's yeah, that's most of my current work. Though I'm just beginning to think about um, a project on public lands in the American West. So. But that's, that's that's a longer term one.
0: Well, cool. Well, thank mm-hmm. you again. Congratulations on the book. And hopefully when those projects start to bear fruit, we'll have you back on. I would love that. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.